and running. Uh, in a very short time, we'll begin an in-depth study of the book of Galatians. I'm very excited about that. Lots of good stuff coming out of that study uh, this past month. But until then, we have the opportunity to look at some selected passages of Scripture for our edification this month, one being 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. And you can find your way there now if you're not there already. But before we finish it out this morning, I want to take just a, uh, I want to take just a, a minute or two to say how relatable this passage shows the Word of God to be. And we're going to see how relatable it is when we get to Galatians. But the Word of God is relatable. It's living, right? It's active. And we can relate to it. We see it here, even in this passage. First of all, the paradoxes Paul presents here are applicable to the Christian life. All right? This is just a, just a few words of observation before we begin. They're applicable to the Christian life. A paradoxical statement is something that is true about us as Christians, but appears to be logically false to the world looking on. That's a paradox. And we find that contrast to be very true for us, don't we? I mean, we, what we call love, they call hate. Now, what we call freedom to them is bondage. Just a couple of examples. Second of all, these paradoxical statements are comprehensive. Now listen very carefully. Paul uses extreme contrasts in these paradoxes to be sure that they relate to every Christian without exception. Every Christian without exception. For example, he speaks of poverty in the extreme case. He says, as having nothing. So that what he what he has to say about this paradoxical uh, or this particular paradox applies to everyone who might be only a little poor. It doesn't make a difference where you are on the spectrum of poverty, real poverty, extreme poverty, or or just a little. This will refer to you. It'll it'll apply to you. So it's comprehensive. In the third place, these paradoxes. Um, present for us very interesting, um, an interesting context. Th they all tell us that no Christian can excuse himself from responding with 100% confidence. In any of these paradoxical contexts, there's no excuse for any Christian not to give or respond in faith with 100% confidence. Paul himself has experienced all of these paradoxical situations or contexts to their extremes. So his faithful responses are worthy to be imitated. Do you see that? Said in another way, if Paul, who experienced all of them to the extreme degree, can respond in a godly manner, those of us who have experienced them to much lesser degrees have no excuse not to respond in a godly manner. And that's my plug for how the Bible is so relatable to us, and we'll see more of that as we go on. Now, more to the point of 2 Corinthians 6, verses 8 to 10, Paul brings up these paradoxes as worthy contexts in which we can not only examine our lifestyle, 
but commend ourselves to God. That's the point we made last time. At any time and place, no matter what the situation, no matter how we're feeling, can we be confident that our immediate responses to our surroundings are commendable to God? What do we mean commendable? Well, I I mean by commendable that we can commend our behavior, our thinking, even our emotional responses to God for his glory and his honor, and also to other Christians as worthy to be imitated. We can say, imitate my faith. By the way, that's very big in the New Testament. It means that God finds our responses admirable, honorable, worthy, exemplary, fine, excellent. And he would because they align with what his word has outlined for us. Tells us how we to behave. We give back to God then by way of lifestyle something praiseworthy from his point of view. He's pleased with obedience, for example. Now, whoever you are, whatever station of life God's called you to, whatever your spiritual gifts, you carry on in a commendable fashion. Our lifestyle represents the Lord fairly and accurately, communicates our loyalty to him who's first in our lives. You pray as you ought. You depend on the Holy Spirit's guidance for strength. You praise God always. You love God and neighbor the way that you should. And in that order, you trust God. You lean not on your own understanding. But you consider God and consult his word in all matters. This is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 4 when he says, Conduct yourselves in a way that is commendable to God. And that command is active, and it's ongoing. It's not just once. It's not just in a week. It's in a lifetime. It's not that we're to live this way only in good seasons of life either, but rather in rough patches as well. And I would add especially in rough patches. Paul explains this truth perhaps in no better place than in his writing to the, to the, uh, to the Corinthians in the second epistle where he had to demonstrate to the Corinthians that his ministry was indeed commendable, regardless of what they've been hearing. You know, a band of false teachers infiltrated the churches of Corinth, discrediting Paul's ministry and apostleship and promoting themselves as true apostles of God. In defending his credentials and divine calling, He calls his audience's attention to the way that he ministers in various contexts, contexts in which his critics would never survive. We looked at the first four last time. Glory and dishonor. Evil report and good report. Regarded as deceivers and yet true. And as unknown yet well-known. They're paradoxes of Christian ministry that captures how the world regards us in these contexts and how God regards us at the same time. And as you might expect, the world regards us in a bad light, but God regards us in a good light. So naturally, false Christian leaders would see, would see these contexts as proof that, Paul, that Paul's calling wasn't genuine. Whereas God sees these contexts as a way 
of demonstrating what we, that we belong to him and that our behavior is commendable. In other words, they may condemn us before unbelievers, but they also commend us to God, these paradoxical contexts. Now, the first four paradoxes uh, begins, begin Paul's encouraging word to us. He says, he says this, look, you should expect to be dishonored and, and, uh, and, and discredited when living obediently in an atmosphere that is hostile to Christ. Expect that. Our message invites that, and it indicates that we're preaching and living the right message. And if you're still having a hard time with being rejected by man, well, remember that the world's esteem doesn't validate your ministry. No, faithfulness to the Lord is what validates your ministry, regardless of how you're received. Paul says we should expect people to speak ill of us since we preach God's truth. Look how they treated Jesus. And besides, it makes no difference if people speak ill of us or well of us. We'll let neither extreme reception affect the way that we carry out how God finds what God finds commendable. We'll not be moved to despair when we're slandered, nor will we succumb to pride when we're praised. All of that is peripheral. The truth is, it's a good thing when the world dismisses our work that God finds commendable. That's the paradox. Paul says we should expect the world to misunderstand us and, and, and regard us as liars when we advocate a way of life that is contrary to and condemn, condemns other faiths. The world doesn't tolerate that. They will call God's truth-tellers liars. That's the paradox, and it's praiseworthy. Paul says, says we should expect to be disregarded and not taken seriously when we preach the cross that is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a good thing when a Christian is treated with disrespect for doing what God considers respectable. That, that is the paradox. Now, we've, been pers- um, we've all been persecuted to some degree for doing what God finds commendable. And we expect that from the world and from even liberal Christianity. Uh, we should not expect, however, to give in to the pressure and compromise, but rather we should stay the course. And Christians will give in if they're immature in their faith, if they don't know their doctrine. They'll second-guess themselves and make unbiblical decisions. They may even mock godly men and women who have a genuine calling. They'll shun many of the biblical principles and commands of Scripture because of the fear of man. I have a hard time submitting to church leadership who follow Christ's commands tenaciously and refuse to compromise. They'd be greatly shaken by difficult trials in their lives, run for cover at the slightest hint of persecution, ignore biblical admonitions for one anothering. They'll think that true the true spirit of the faith is one that is tolerant and overlook error and try to please people. Misguided Christians will carry on this way when they insist on validating their own ministry and their walk by how they are perceived. 
They will validate their Christian life on the basis of appearances, how they are regarded and how well they are accepted by others. Paul's first paradoxes show a very different story for Christians who mean business for Christ, and so do the rest of them. So let's, let's look on. Let's continue in the list. Paul says, as dying, and yet behold, we live. As dying, and behold, yet we live. What's Paul getting at? How can you be dying and yet live? Well, Jesus once said, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 6, 25. It's quite clear that for Christians, physical death has no bearing on eternal life. Those who give their lives to Christ, who live for him, are those who have been born again and will enjoy eternal life with him when life as they know it on this earth ends. And until that time, Christians die at least in two ways. First, they die to themselves daily, killing the impulses of their flesh to fall back on old sinful habits. They die to self and, and, and look more like Christ every day. Paul described his ministry this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He said, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. The second way that we die is that we are prepared to die physically for Christ every day. So in our minds... You could say, we're as good as dead. We have already accepted the fact that today may be the day that we die for Christ. Is that how you think? Jesus defined true believers as those who take up their cross daily. And they do so unreservedly because they know that their physical bodies will be redeemed at the resurrection at the end of the age. Paul was motivated by this truth to endure severe trials in his life. He was dragged outside the city of Lystra after being stoned and left for dead there. How could a man like this endure these kinds of of trials that eventually ended in his martyrdom? Well, because he knew though his body will die, it would be resurrected a new body. He said in 2 Corinthians 1, Verses 8 and 9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that, the, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead. There's no no question what motivated Paul here. Contrary to popular belief, the life of a Christian is not an easy or glamorous one. It is filled with persecution and wearing. And years of tireless serving Christ will show. We shouldn't think that this kind of life is restricted, by the way, to missionaries either. That's a typical misconception. Oh, you know, they, they go to far-off places and they put themselves in all kinds of danger. And then there's the strain that comes from living in another culture. Yes, but Christians, no matter where they live, live differently from the culture. At least they should. 
The way of life in Christ is so starkly different everywhere that one, that they that the one that they once knew, the life they once knew, that they that they don't have any longer is is still characteristic of the lives of others around them, their unsaved counterparts. And they don't have to then go outside the country in order to be in the midst of a godless culture or be persecuted. Certainly not in America the way it is now. In fact, I know plenty of missionaries who cannot wait to go back to the far-off lands after being in furlough in America. That's right. They, they find many of the negative and anti-Christian influences specific to the U.S. absent on the foreign field. Isn't that interesting? They'd, they'd rather raise their kids there than here. Foreign fields can be a, a welcome haven, in fact, for Christians compared to what they face here. And if we follow Jesus but find our living among unbelievers in this part of the world easy, well, then that's our own fault. We must not be living Christ to this part of the world. It's the only conclusion we could come to. If we were, we'd find life more difficult. The Puritan Richard Baxter once said, quote, God have mercy upon the man who finds the ministry of the gospel to be easy work. For he will have need of all God's mercy indeed when he renders up his account at the last day, end quote. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Quote, I cannot conceive of a more atro atrocious offender against humanity and against God than the man who, having souls committed to his trust, finds it an easy thing to take care of them and watch for their salvation. The ministry is a matter of which wears the brain, strains the heart, and drains out the life of a man if he attends to it as he should. If God were served by any of us as he should be, I question whether we should not grow old before our time through labor and anguish, even as did the great lover of souls, Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, end quote. They're right. But let's hasten on. Here's another paradox. As punished yet not put to death, as punished yet not put to death. Perhaps one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life is test by trial. Test by trial. The Christian life, whether it's Paul's or any Christian's, is commended through tough situations. We need to understand that. We've noted already the persecution Paul received being of a magnitude not faced by most in the church throughout the centuries. Paul essentially says by this particular phrase, he says, listen, times when our faith is severely tested are not bad, nor are, do they lead to death, but they're good and they lead to a richer, fuller life that looks more like Christ. The word behind the NASB's translation, punishment here, might be better understood as discipline. It's the kind that our Heavenly Father uses to correct his children. And Paul's chastisements were certainly life threat were not life-threatening. Uh, I'm sorry, they were life-threatening, but they never claimed his life. God sovereignly ordained them all. 
And in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and 8, God deliberately gives Paul a trial. Paul called it a thorn in his side that he refused to remove for Paul's good to keep Paul from becoming prideful and to keep Paul trusting in divine grace for his calling. That is a good thing. Now, Paul saw his divinely allotted weakness as a strength and an opportunity for blessing and praise. A ministry to the Corinthians may have put him at a disadvantage from a human perspective, but from a biblical perspective, it was all for the greater advancement of the gospel and edification of the church. And that's why he says in 2 Corinthians 13.9, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Paul rejoiced in these divinely tailor-made trials. Make no mistake, seeing them as platforms for ministry. And other New Testament writers confirm this. But Paul's opponents in in Corinth interpreted Paul's hardships not as God's blessings, but as a divine judgment that Paul richly deserved for misrepresenting true religion. Oh, yes. Yeah, they, they were like Job's three friends. One of the greatest witnessing tools in our arsenal, beloved, is our gratitude toward the use of divinely tailored trials. If we... If we're selfish and we look at difficult times as nuisances, become angry, bitter, complain, grumble over them, become short with people, then we've misunderstood the doctrine of trials. We forget that God is building our character or maybe bringing a sin that's embedded deep into our hearts to our attention so that we could repent of it or developing in us the fruit of the Spirit, or keeping us depending on Him. And while the world sees only that that the quality of our life is lessened by an aggressive Christian lifestyle, we know better. We expect maturity and growth and praise and joy, as the writer of Hebrews says, a harvest of righteousness, right? Chapter 12. Paul says we should expect to endure many tests in our lives, divine chastisement, because they're good for us, not bad. And that's the paradox. Here's the other one, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Paul experienced great sorrow throughout his life. If you read his life, you'll see that. He had great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart, Romans chapter 9, for his unbelieving countrymen. He felt the daily pressure of his concern for the churches as a godly pastor would. He had to contend with their factions and immature behavior and immoral behavior and selfishness. There seemed to be no end to his letdowns either. Demas deserted him for the world. Alexander the coppersmith did him great harm. And at his first defense in Rome, no one supported him, but all deserted him. Peter's hypocrisy at Galatia. Then there was the sorrowful letter he had to write to the Corinthians that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 2.4. He said, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. He warned the Ephesian elders day and night with tears Luke says, in Acts 20, 
about false teachers that will rise up from their own ranks and mislead many. You can hear the sorrow in his words to the churches of Galatia. Chapter 4, verse 19, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone of voice, for I am at a loss about you. No question Paul had sorrow upon sorrow in his ministry. The world and misguided Christians may well conclude that he wasn't successful or had a poor quality of life again. Should the world see us as sorrowful? Should we be sorrowful? Well, I think the answer is, of course, yes, to some degree. Jesus, who himself was called the man of sorrows, said, blessed is he who mourns. Why should mourning be part of the Christian makeup or even a blessed thing? At least two good reasons. One is that we're sinners and still grieve the Holy Spirit at times. God delights in godly sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. The other reason is that there are truly lamentable things in this world that are the result of the fall and will not be righted until Christ comes again. Broken marriages, disease, abortion, the moral mess that characterizes our culture, the pervasive hostility against Christianity, disobedient and rebellious children, unrepentant believers and violators of God's command, and unbelief that Jesus faced when he raised Lazarus from the dead, which prompted him to cry. To be sober and serious about such matters, even mourn over them, shows that we are in step with how God views the situation. But also, it may provide an opportunity, you know, to witness to people who don't see things as lamentable, but they should. And when they ask you why you do, well, you can tell them. Now, while it's proper and holy to mourn over truly lamentable issues, never does sorrow override, much less extinguish, the deep abiding joy that we have in salvation and in the reality of our faith, which will someday become sight. And people should also see that in us. It's sort of a balance. We can be sober and rejoicing. We can be sorrowful and yet glad. Another paradox. Jesus' teaching in John 16.33 is that tribulation and rejoicing are two sides of the same coin. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul said to the Philippians, Chapter 2, verse 17. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. See the, the paradox. Paul had offered his life as a sacrifice to the Lord in Philippi by evangelizing, church planting, edifying the saints. And he told them, rejoice in the Lord always and exceedingly. He told the Thessalonians the same thing. And the Romans, that he considered 
the sufferings of this present time are not worthy be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us which i'm sure made him very glad <clears throat> then there is this bold declaration that he makes in second corinthians 4:16 and 17 we do not lose heart though our outer nature is wasting away our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Paul says that we should expect then to mourn over what is truly mournful because this is what we this is because this in this rather we share the same sorrow of our heavenly father over sin that continues until the final day and at the same time we rest in our deep and abiding joy of knowing Christ and all that awaits us. This is the paradox, sorrowful yet rejoicing. The next is as poor yet making many rich. By the world standards, Paul was a poor man and so are most in full-time ministry. Missionaries constantly have to raise support And it's common for pastors in America to be underpaid. Material wealth and possessions are what is about, are are what is all about, um, are what it's all about, I should say, from the point of of the world. The world regards material possessions. It, it, It regards riches. And it was the same point of view from Paul's enemies in Corinth as well. We shouldn't be surprised at that. They couldn't believe that Paul wouldn't sell his religion, a practice, by the way, that all the cults did in the first century, and they criticized him for it. Some Corinthians were persuaded. They saw this as a sure sign that Paul was not of the caliber and stature of an apostle. How could he be if he didn't consider his religion worth something that fetched a high price? But Paul would let them know that salvation is by God's free grace. And he even denied his right to receive monetary support from the Corinthian churches so as not to be a stumbling block to the unsaved. He didn't want to risk people thinking that he was selling the gospel or that there was somehow works involved. Now, he did the same thing in Thessalonica as well, but for different reasons. Many there were just, well, quite frankly, slouches. They were lazy. Paul denies his right of support from that church in order to model a godly work ethic. Now, as poor as Paul was, materially speaking, he was quite wealthy, spiritually speaking. Like all Christians, he had a great inheritance waiting for him. And he needed nothing because he had everything that he could ever want in Christ. And that truth empowered him to put himself in humbling situations and humbling positions so that others could become as spiritually rich as he was. He says, Ephesians 3.8, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. We're called to preach 
the unsearchable riches of Christ too. And we may find that going without, taking a cut in pay or refusing support in a particular situation may put us in a better position to do that. Are we ready for that? Christ is our example. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's not only a truth, that's a model for us. Peter once put the gospel that that saves above silver and gold, Acts 3, telling a layman that he had no money to give him, but what he had was something money couldn't buy. And Jesus first forgave the sins of the lame man in Mark 2, who desperately wanted to walk, only and then only after physically healed him. Why? Because it's better to be in right standing before God without the physical ability to stand than to be whole and hell-bound. Jesus also said, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Beloved, there's nothing here of any value for those of us who build treasure in heaven. Nothing. Therefore, we'll, we'll not hesitate to live by humble means if it, makes, if it makes way for proclaiming the gospel or instructing others in gospel living because we're rich beyond imagination. Treasures of heaven belong to us. That's the paradox. Finally, as having nothing yet possessing all things. This last phrase is similar to the previous one, just more comprehensive. You see, it's one thing to have no money. But the poor who have no money, the world's poor, can still look to certain relationships or certain endeavors for meaning and purpose in life or dependence or safety and refuge. Christians, on the other hand, are those who put all on the line for Christ. Those things the world considers precious. So how is it that Christians can be said to possess all things when they are prepared to deny them for Christ? Well, Jesus' first answer to this question is what you might expect. Christians have eternal life, which is infinitely more valuable than anything we have in this life. Listen to Matthew 6, 26. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Implication, the soul to be saved in eternal life, is of greater value than anything. Now we have the guarantee, or we have the guarantee now, of a, of a coming inheritance. So that's one answer to this question. But the second answer is something that you might not expect. Until we inherit our heavenly riches, Jesus gives us all that we need now to seek the kingdom. Oh, yes. Listen to his words in Mark 10, verses 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Huh. Jesus teaches here that he abundantly supplies our needs in this life too, and in great marvelous ways. If a, Christian is, if a Christian is disowned by his family, God gives him a new one. It's called the church. If he's fired from his job because of his faith, God provides in other ways. We might not live in palatial estates, but it's interesting how the Lord will put us up, so to speak, in such places, bring us to far-off countries, and introduce us to important people as we go about preaching and teaching the truth. My personal experience, beloved, is this. I have owned no pools in my, in my lifetime, but I have swam, swum in plenty of them. No boat of my own, but I traveled in many of them. No mansions of my own, but stayed in plenty of them. No summer home in the Riviera, <laughs> Riviera but ministered and taught the Bible in many countries. We really own nothing, but the world as our mission field belongs to us. Paul told the Corinthians that all things were theirs in Christ, and that the Roman church, and to the Roman church, God gives freely all things. What's our takeaway from all of this? Well, paradoxes of the Christian life. They're different kinds. But those we look at this morning, they set the Christian life in its proper perspective for us. Do we have respect? Well, not from the world, which brings us God's praise and respect. And that's all that matters. Do we receive a good report? Well, not from the world, which is really good news from God's point of view. And he'll tell us on that last day, well done. Are we deceivers? Well, to the world's way of thinking, yes, because we propagate a single message or a singular message that Jesus is the only way. But God knows that proclamation is true and right. It's his word. Are we nobodies? Most of us are. No one may regard us or take us seriously because of our message and our way of life. But God knows us and has sent us as his ambassadors. Are we dying physically? Yes. And many of us more quickly than the average unbeliever because of the persecution of the faith. But every day we look more like Christ and come closer to eternal life. Life to the fullest. Are we condemned by the world? Yes. By God? No. God has saved us. And he will do what it takes to finish that good work that he started in us. Philippians 1.6 Are we a sorry bunch as the world sees us? <laughs> Absolutely not. We mourn over what is truly mournful. And we're serious about eternal matters. But at the same time, we live with a peace in our hearts that pass all understanding 
always rejoicing, and especially in situations where unbelievers cannot. Are we poor? Most of us are by the world's standards. But we have a treasure in heaven, and we will not hesitate to deny ourselves even more of the little we have in this life for the chance to see others become as spiritually rich as we are. Have we lost everything? Yes. For Christ's sake, which has made us possessors of those things which really matter. Take comfort in these truths, beloved. Walk with confidence. You belong to Christ and you have a sure calling that is vindicated by what God says, which is, which is mostly the very opposite of what the world believes to be true. And if Paul can walk with confidence in them, so can you, for you and he have the same source of power. Listen to his testimony in this regard. Philippians 4, 13, 11 to 13, which should be ours as well. And we'll close with these words from the apostle. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And our Father in God, we are so grateful that we have been strengthened in Christ, that we have been made new in Christ, redeemed. And as new creations in Christ, O oh God, we pray that we would strive to live what is true of us in this very difficult battlefield in which you have placed us to be your ambassadors. We pray we would not lose heart at what people may say of us or how we are perceived, but that we would regard what you think of us as being the most important, that we might continue to stay the course for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.